Hey friends, welcome to episode 20 of the Making Room on the Pew podcast, a podcast for the church, misfits and outcasts. Guys, today we have Holly Stalkip on the podcast and I am so, so excited. Holly is the founder and executive director of RISE, which is a collective to gather diverse women leaders and to build up and out their spirit-breathed gifts. Guys, it's all about diversity and empowering women in leadership, and it is powerful. Holly also teaches, preaches, writes custom small group curriculum, and is gifted in event planning and facilitation. She works with all age groups ranging from young girls to older adult women. She talks about hard things through a lens of redemption and teaches a cut to the chase truth with the desire to see each woman fulfill her kingdom call. And guys, you are absolutely going to get a taste of that in today's conversation. Um, So we're going to get started here. If you guys love what you hear, and I know you are going to, Holly is so impactful, so empowering. Uh, I'm so honored to have her on here. Um, Stick around till the end. I have a little update on her organization, Rise, and a way for you to get involved. All right, without further ado, let's get into the conversation with Holly Stalkip about singleness, marriage, and how diversity is actually a good thing. Thank you so much um, for taking the time to talk with me on the podcast. I'm really excited. Yeah, me too. Great. So I um, have given you a little blurb um, before you and I started talking, but um, I do want to give you just the space and the time to tell our listeners who maybe haven't connected with you before a little bit about you and your work and whatever you would like them to know. Yeah, Um, well, I'm so glad to be here, Um, and my name is Holly. I live in Texas. I'm a lifelong Texan, much to my dismay. Um, I don't have enough Texas pride probably to live here, Um, but I am single um, and have uh, a wonderful dog named Jack, who is my uh, immediate family. He even gets to go to church with me, which is a dream um, come true. Um, I go to a wonderful uh, church with a dozen folding chairs um, gathered around the communion elements. Um, It's a a safe, welcoming uh, place that has been a respite um, for me as I have kind of gone through that classic late 20s, early 30s deconstruction and reconstruction. So I'm the executive director of a nonprofit called Rise. Um, We are eight and a half years old, um, and we believe that the body of Christ, the universal church, should be the best place to be a woman. And we are working um, to make that a reality um, by coming alongside incredible women who are doing incredible things and making sure that they have the resources and the relationships to keep doing that work. Um, So uh, it's very rewarding and very hard as I've found most uh, really good things in life are. So um, yeah, I write and speak and teach um, and I've learned that I love um, visiting on podcasts like yours. And so I'm glad to be here today and 
Um, I love talking about singleness and mental health, including eating disorders and um, talking about what it looks like to build uh, Christian spaces where women can thrive. And um, yeah, so thanks for having me, Bailey. Yeah, of course. Holly, what is your faith history? Have you always been at really like simple, low-key churches? Yeah, so I grew up Methodist and would um, probably still um, identify as a Methodist. Um, I um, then went to a charismatic Methodist church in college, which is uh, not a thing I knew existed. Um, And that was um, really a good space to dive into the the goods and the uh, not so good things in charismatic movements. And then I did my time in the evangelical, larger, multi-campus churches, um, and then have um, had some time in an evangelical, multi-ethnic church, and now have come back around to this um, small space full of Baptists and Methodists and um, atheists and um, just a a really interesting crew of people that I believe only the spirit could um, gather together. So I was drawn back to the liturgy of my childhood, the groundedness of saying the words um, that I still had memorized, you know, and singing the hymns that I still had memorized. I was very lucky um, to not leave my childhood years with church trauma. Um, And I'm really thankful for that. Um, I um, had parents and have parents who love Jesus radically um, and who are really open to questions and mystery um, and who are still learning. Um, They are the best adults, older adults at being willing Um, to learn. My dad just marched in his first pride parade um, Mm. just this year um, and is a born and bred West Texas boy. um, So you can imagine that is not um, how he grew up. So um, I have uh, just a family that really um, embodied Jesus and, and does embody Jesus to me. So yeah, I love to ask that because I think that so many of us have sort of that same story of we started wherever we started and somewhere along the way in our 20s and 30s we like bounce between a couple of different traditions and I feel like probably I'm sure not always but in my experience everyone that I talk to says yeah and then I went to the evangelical church for a little while and now I'm back to simple and grounded and slow And I think it's so interesting because I actually grew up in, we called ourselves United Methodists, but it was really just um, evangelical, even pretty um, like Pentecostal sort Mm -hmm. of with like flags and dancing and like speaking in tongues. And um, I, so I was there for the majority of my childhood and had a lot of trauma wrapped up in that experience. Mm -hmm. And now I go to um, a United Church of Christ. And it's, it was so weird when I first started going. um, Because it is, it's slow. And like, the hymns are like, quiet. I don't know. It's just, it's so interesting to be, I think, in 
a space where there is space yeah. for you to yeah. bring yourself and to ask questions and to connect with God rather than a place where it is just crammed full of light shows and smoke and noise and drums. Not that any of that is particularly bad. And I even had some really great memories from that. But I think it's so interesting that so many of us go either back to our roots or find our ways into these simple spaces. Yeah. And I, I think that at a very subconscious level, um, you know, my therapist and I joke, sometimes she just has to tell me to not leave the house because I'm so overstimulated by how um, busy the world is and all of the billboards and all of the, you know, things, the noises. And, and I think subconsciously we are looking for at least an hour a week <laughs> where things are more intentional and um, do provide um, just like literally the space um, to breathe and the the rhythms that ask us to breathe. And I, I completely agree with you there. I just told a friend recently that I was missing kind of the um, just high intensity, lengthy times of worship that you can find in the evangelical church. And, and I miss some of the contemporary music that was formative for me in my early 20s. And I joke that if I ever started a church, I would call it everything in the kitchen sink. Uh, mm -hmm. Because one of the cool parts of my job is getting to be uh, through travel and through different women that are a part of our RISE community, getting to be in so many different church spaces. And I've yet to visit a church or a small group or a Christian sorority where I've walked away and I haven't been able to list anything good that I see the Spirit doing. Um, I just... I'm so aware of how God shows up in just an absurd amount of different spaces. And something I grieve regularly is that there are so many Jesus followers who will only ever have entered one kind of way of meeting with the spirit. Um, and so I, um, I love that about my job and, and something that um, I think I even want to be more intentional about doing is, you know, once a quarter taking a Sunday off from my beloved church and just visiting somewhere and making sure that I always hold loosely the things that I do love about my church um, and remembering that God is working there, but God is also, you know, I live in Texas, so there's literally a church on every corner, um, but, but God is showing up in all of those spaces, even with all of their problems that we need to talk about. You know, I don't want to paint over harmful theology or not have good, deep, hard conversations about what are the best ways um, to lead people and disciple people. But I also don't ever want to lose the lens that God shows up everywhere, right? Like he shows up through all kinds of music and all kinds of really broken people. Um, and so, yeah, I could talk about that all day because I just, I can't wait. Um, and I don't know what this looks like when God makes it all right and new, but I feel like it'll be like an everything in the kitchen sink church. Like I feel like 
I'll get to do liturgy while I do my charismatic flag waving, while I sit in a small group where we ask questions and don't have answers. And um, that gets me, gets me really um, excited and makes me really hopeful. Yeah. Do you think um, before God makes it all new and right, do you think that we can blend together um, multiple types of worship? Yeah, that's a really good question. And because I'm not going to start a a church that is not in, in my game plan. You know, I really hope that's what we're trying to do at Rise and the organization Um, that I get to help lead. Our idea is, and this has almost become a a cliche statement, I feel like, but the idea of building a long table um, and the idea that we don't build unity by ignoring our differences, but by showing up in them, right? By being willing to show up at the table fully as we are, knowing that people at the table are going to be really different than us and that we're going to disagree on things that really matter, right? That impact people's lives in real ways, but that I just can't ignore. I can't ever get over that as Jesus is getting ready to leave us, right? As we get ready, getting ready to leave his disciples, he could have told us anything like he could have, but I have to think like, you know, we talked about, talk about like first impressions and last impressions are the most important thing. And, and surely Jesus knew that, you know, business networking tip, but um, you know, one of the last things he tells us is like, be one, you know, be unified and the world will notice, like the world will know um, that, that something cool and different is going on here. Um and that's obviously my translation, but, um, and so I hope, you know, that the thing we say is like at rise, we want people that are really different to come to the table and have heated arguments, um, and share their stories in vulnerable ways. And then still at the end of that, be willing to take a breath and go in the kitchen and come back and eat dessert together. (laughs) Um, knowing that we didn't come to a lot of conclusions and we didn't fix everything and we didn't change everyone's mind, but that I just have to believe that something supernatural, something miraculous happens when we're willing to show up at the table and listen and learn and yet fully be ourselves. Um, And so, yeah, I, I am hopeful that I'm hopeful that every time any of us show up fully as ourselves in spaces where not everyone is like us, that that's at least a preview of what God is going to do. You know, I love the visual that the kingdom is just going to be this big open field um, as far as the eye can see (laughs) with all these different kinds of people worshiping him in a different, a million different ways. And, Um, And that, yeah, somewhere way out there, there may be some fences, but they aren't, they aren't even in our view. What we see is this, this place where we've all been able to come together and and gather. Yeah, I love that. I just wrote um, something you said, we don't build unity by ignoring our differences, but by showing up in them. Yeah, I love that. I think that's so powerful if we could 
figure out how to do that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and it's, it's complicated. We, especially at RISE, wrestle with how to create diverse, unified, safe, safe spaces. Um, so how do we bring a lot of different people to our digital and physical tables and still protect the marginalized? Um, and we uh, don't have a ton of answers on that yet. That's something that is really on our radar in the next few years is, you know, figuring out um, my friend Faith Brooks, when we visited a couple years ago about this idea of a long table where we welcome a lot of different people, she as a black woman said, I don't want to sit at a table with a white supremacist, even if they mm -hmm. say they're a Christian. And I said, well, that's fair. I don't want you to sit there either. But then what we talked about is that I as a white woman want to be willing to show up to a table with a white supremacist Christian, that that is my responsibility. Um, is to sit and to listen to that person's story and how they came to believe what they believed and then to speak truth and to fight for what I think is God's best. Um, and so we're still really wrestling at RISE with what does it look like to have unity? What does it look like to have diversity? Um, what does it look like to believe that most of us have more in common than we have apart and even more in common um, with what we believe about God, then we have different, um, but also identify that a lot of people have been hurt um, by the church and by theology um, and by um, the ways that Christians have interacted with them. And so, um, yeah, that's more of a, a question than an answer, but um, it is difficult, but I, I see every day in my work, women connect who would never be at the same church on a Sunday morning, right? Like their stories are too different. Their theologies are, are too different. And yet I watch them learn from each other and love each other and pray for each other and invest in each other. And that is enough for me to keep asking these questions and, and showing up myself um, and doing the work. What's the story behind Rise? Why did you start it? Yeah, so, you know, I started it when I was 23, I think. So it's changed a lot um, in the last eight and a half years. Um, and, and I'm grateful that God allows us to grow and change. You know, when I first started Rise, I just saw through my own lens. I was 23 and out of college and single, which was not my plan. Um, I had grown up with just enough purity culture um, to not have lots of trauma, but to definitely believe that if you were good and you didn't sleep around and, you know, you only, only dated to marry that, you know, definitely by the end of college, you would be able to get married. And so um, I, I did the right things and um, had a couple of boyfriends that looked like I would get my reward and then that didn't work out um, and it was it was a truly a little t trauma for me because I had so idolized marriage I had seen that as the only path forward for me I had imagined that this was what adulthood was and so you know I kind of saw this gap um, of how we think about women in the church and specifically how we were doing quote unquote women's ministry and the fact that those ministries were modeled around women who were wives and mothers. Um, and I, 
I joked that if you didn't have a ring, you couldn't get in the door, right? Like that was like the, the secret password for the women's ministry clubhouse was, was your wedding ring. And, and I didn't have one of those. And I knew a lot of women who didn't have them, but that first year I did a lot of listening. I had a lot of coffee dates and lunches and um, going to people's houses while their kids played on the floor. And what really was revealed very quickly was that I wasn't the only one feeling like there wasn't a place for me in the church as a woman. I was sitting with widowed women and divorced women and women who were married but had either chosen not to have kids or couldn't have kids. I then really, it was appalling. I would sit with women who literally ministries are made for them, like stay-at-home moms, and them saying, I don't want anything to do with the way that we minister to women in my church. Like, I would rather go to the men's ministry Bible study. I hate the way that the, the you know, studies are set up. I hate that all we do is study Proverbs and Psalms. I hate that I have to feel like I have to dress up to go, you know, and that there are clicks. And so by the end of the first year, I was like, oh, wow, God, this is about a million times bigger than what I thought I was committing to. Um, and just really realized um, that we had a much larger issue in the church when it came to women's ministry. And so for a few years, we really worked in that space of what does it look like to transform women's ministry in the church? And then a few years ago, we finally settled in to realizing that we can create the best women's ministries at churches, and we can create safe, welcoming, empowering spaces, but that if then once they walk out the door of their small group or their luncheon or, you know, their service project, they are walking into a broader universal church context that isn't good for women then really all we've done is create these um, safe spaces that are almost deceptive. <laughs> um, and so now our focus is to say that the last thing that women need is one more thing to do. I just don't run into women who are like, I have all this time and money and energy and I don't know what to do with it. Um, what I do run into is women who are already doing incredible things. Um, women who are public school teachers, women who are volunteering for their neighborhood associations, women who are pastors and writers, women who are nurses and lawyers, women who are working. Um, I think about Laura Jean, who you had on the podcast mm -hmm. just recently, you know, women who are working as bartenders, <laughs> um, loving people through those things. Um, but what we were able to identify is that women are often lacking resources. So they're often lacking whether financial resources to do their important work, whether um, theological study or other kinds of academic resources, whether it's the ability to go to a conference and learn and connect with people, um, whether it's places to rest and retreat. Um, and so my job at RISE is simply to connect with incredible women and then look at them and say, what do you need? Because we believe in the work that you're doing and want to make sure that you can do it well and in a sustainable way that is healthy and life-giving for you. So I could talk about RISE all day. I love it, but that's a not-so-short summary. <laughs> it sounds like so much of your journey to create RISE is connected to your singleness and 
I mean, I think you're absolutely right. We don't talk about it enough. And it's something that I think I have consistently overlooked because I did not have that period of singleness. I got married at, I don't know, 23, I think. I mean, I was young. Yeah. And while I am married to a woman, so it, it looks and feels very different. I am still married and I can still, you know, make the jokes at church and um, kind of do what needs, say what, what people expect me to say. Um, I am 32, about to be 32 and single. And it is never what I would have expected. Um, I would have expected to get married when you did. Um, and so, yeah, I think so much of my work at Rise and just who I am has been shaped by my singleness, specifically because it is not what I expected and it's not what I want. Um, it is not, um, it is now a, a space that I see as a gift, um, but still, I would like to get married tomorrow um, if that's an option. And if anyone is listening to this podcast and um, you're a single man and would like to marry me, you just let Bailey Joe know and uh, she'll, she'll get you in touch. But um, yeah, so I, I would agree with you. I think my work has been shaped a lot by, um, by being single. Yeah. What do you know about God that I don't know because of your singleness? Yeah, that's a good question you know, we're, we live in a society that is just so naturally competitive and um, I think especially uh, the Western world and kind of the American dream shapes us to just want to rank things and compete and say what is best and um, what's our favorite. You know, we love all those kind of extreme words. And, and so I think we're constantly feeling like marriage is better or singleness is better because it shows us this about God or that about God. Um, and then I think we are so desperate because we think that's bullshit. Um, I'm assuming I can cuss on this podcast. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Although now I don't know if I'm going to pass this one on to my mom. She won't be happy about that, but, um, I think she's given up on, on all of her kids. That's the one place she's failed. But, um, so I think that I think sometimes also then we're trying to make sure we always say marriage and singleness are equal and, oh, well, you know, if, if marriage can show me this about God, then singleness can show it to me also. And so I liked how you framed that question. That's all to say that I like how you frame that question about um, what might I know about God or have experienced about God that um, you might not have. And, and I could pose the same question to you, right? Like what has marriage taught you about God? And, and I, the reason I would rather frame it like that instead of, well, we're all learning the same things is because if you're learning something different in your marriage than I'm learning in my singleness, then that demands that we be in community together. Um, because you know something about God that I don't know, and I want to know more about God. I want to experience the fullness of this infinite God to the best of my ability. Um, and so, um, what I know about God, um, specifically because of my singleness, uh, also this is a very challenging question, so um, I don't know how much I appreciate you asking it, but 
you know, I kind of want to go to, I feel like what might be kind of the obvious answer and, and probably feels a little cliche, but you know, that God is enough or that God is all I need. Um, I really, I think there's a lot of tension in that for me because I do think my singleness has pushed me into more intimacy with God. I think that, um, I mean, if I had gotten married when I wanted to, I think I would still follow God um, and go to church and, and try to behave like Jesus. Um, but I, I don't know what my intimacy would look like with him, at least in an organic way, really birthed out of a lot of suffering and, and anger and sadness and grief and loneliness. Um, my problem with me saying a statement like, my singleness has taught me I only need God. Um, is that that excuse is used consciously and subconsciously by hundreds of thousands of married Christians to neglect their single siblings. Mm. Um, and so if a single person wants to say, my singleness has taught me that what I need is God, I'm cool with that. <laughs> but if a married person wants to say that, I would ask them to please not say that. Um, and I, I might say it harsher than that to, to certain married people, but, um, I think that all people need people, right? I mean, that is what the story of Adam and Eve is about. It's not about marriage primarily. It's about community. It's about God looking at one human and saying the animals are not enough for you. Um, and I mean, I think some introverts would argue like, no, no, the animals are plenty for me. Thank you. But um, we'll trust God on this one that we need, we need people. Um, and so while my singleness may draw me into God in an intimate way that am I to get married, which I, I hope is what will happen. I think I will have to be more intentional about it, right? Like, I don't think it's that you can't experience that intimacy with God when you're married. I just think loneliness births intimacy with God. Like when, you know, and I live alone in this season. So it's even more stark than when I had roommates or lived with families in their guest bedroom. But I think, you know, the practice of solitude in marriage um, has got to be really important um, because if you have an awesome spouse, <laughs> um, you're going to be drawn to that person um, and not quickly drawn to God, I think. Um, and I think that's it's really hard. It's why I talk a lot about codependency in marriage because I think the church has actually like lifted up a model of codependency in marriage that is is really problematic for a million reasons. I could do a whole podcast on that. And I say that as a recovering codependent. Um, so I'm extra passionate about how damaging that dynamic can be. But yeah, I think that um, singleness has also taught me, I think, to have like a, like an understanding that even though the days are long, the years are short, which is something you actually hear parents say a lot. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's a truth for all of us that like, on weekends or at night, I think, oh my gosh, I will literally die tonight because I do not have companionship. And then I don't, right? And I get up the next morning 
and I do important good work. And then at the end of the year, I don't look back and think about every individual night and how lonely I was. Even if loneliness was a theme for a year, I look back and think about how my friends celebrated me on my birthday or the important work we accomplished at Rise or the family vacation we took or the times that I had with my dog at the dog park. And so I think like an understanding of my smallness and the smallness of my life, like in a good way, in a comforting way that, that like, it's okay if this thing isn't, feel, doesn't feel good all the time. And like, it's so I've been practicing, I am an Enneagram too. And so I feel everyone's feelings. And so I have to practice thinking about what I'm feeling. <laughs> um, and um, so I often journal in the mornings, what are you feeling? And something I've been practicing feeling is okay. Um, because I want to feel either good or bad. I want to feel like this is a bad day and here are all the reasons it's bad, or this is a good day and here are all the reasons it's good. And the reality is that most days are just okay days. They don't have to be low and they don't have to be high. They're just a day where I wake up and do my best to love myself and love others. And so um, I think that singleness has probably made that where I can discover that that is like a good expectation for life. And I think especially if I had gotten married young, I would have had the most unreasonable expectations for life. I would have expected highs all the time. Um, and then something I've been digging into recently is, and then this is a really long answer, so I'll wrap up, but um, the phrase marriage is hard, I think is a really problematic phrase. Um, that a lot of us in the church have been taught. Um, and I really like when I talked about this recently on Twitter, we had some great conversations and some people reframed it as marriage is work. Um, and I like that a lot better. And one of my other things that I think I could have very easily gotten caught up in if I had gotten married young for myself is being in a marriage that was unnecessarily hard. Um, and, and thinking well, yeah, like life is just high and then it's low. Um, and, and so I'm really glad that singleness has given me space to understand, um, like, I am small, my time here is small, the world is small, and it's okay if everything isn't memorable and fancy or super depressing and messed up. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a lot, but thank you for asking the question. Hey friends, I wanted to break into this episode here really quickly to tell you something I'm very excited about um, that is launching now in 2020. Um, I am now over on Patreon. So if you know what Patreon is, you know how exciting that is. Uh, and if you don't, Patreon is just a way for us to uh, support financially the uh, independent creatives, the authors, podcasters, filmmakers, whatever type of creatives you love, um, so that they're able to continue to do this work. So. Uh, you may know <laughs> this takes time and effort and money and uh, 
a lot of us can't afford to just do this work full-time, so we do have full-time jobs also. A great way to support uh, those of us who do this creative work is to help us out financially if you are able. Um, even just $1 a month really does a lot. Uh, so head on over to Patreon. That's in the show notes as well, but it's just patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash Bailey W-P making it easy for you. Um, So head on over there to find out all of the perks you can get uh, as a Patreon, as a supporter of this work, depending on your level of giving. All right, guys, back to the show. I'm wondering kind of on two levels. So individually, what can we do to support our single friends, especially married people of single friends because I yeah. feel like that's a hard it's it's tricky yeah. um and then also kind of as a community how can churches be more welcoming or affirming of single people yeah so I'll actually start with churches because I think churches beginning these conversations is a great way to trickle down into individual spaces I think it can go the other way too. individuals learning to do this and then taking it to their church spaces. But um, the church is a hard place to be single. Um, And that is pretty across the board from the most fundamentalist church to the most progressive church. Um, If you're at a progressive church in a more urban area where there just are more single people, um, you might get lucky. Um, But You know, a pretty recent statistic from the Barna Group is that even though the U.S. now is split pretty 50-50 between single and married people, um, when you look at church attendance, only one-third of church attendees are single. So this is um, not a a small problem. There, There are a lot of single people I know who want to be in a faith community, but have specifically left faith communities because of the way that singleness is handled or isn't handled um, in their churches. So um, I think that you start with leadership, right? A church can't be what they can't see. And so if your elder board doesn't have any single people on it, that's a problem. Um, If you're setting your budget without any single people involved, that's a problem. If you don't have single people preaching, that's a problem, (laughs) right? Like where are single people leading? Um, So often, quote unquote singles ministry in the church is framed with horrible power dynamics of these single people need to be served or on the flip side these single people need to serve right this um expectation that single people just have all this time on their hands and so they can they can do more for the church um this completely ignores the realities that like uh, when you're married if you're in kind of a 
a quote unquote normal marriage, y'all are splitting household duties. You're splitting getting the oil changed. You're splitting doing all these things. And if a person is single and isn't operating in community, like I would like to see happen, they're doing all those things on their own. Single people, no matter what their age, are often seen as the easy babysitter, um, which listen, I love spending time with my kids' friends and I'm happy to be the babysitter, but I don't want that to be assumed that that is my role in a community um, is is to watch um, kids. And for some single people, especially older singles, there is a lot of grief around children as they had dreamed that they would have kids of their own. Um, and they, they haven't been able to take that path. And so I think starting with leadership, I think um, watching your language, um, both from the pulpit and communications, um, don't use the word family. Um, and I, that's so hard for me because I believe the church is supposed to be a family. But I think at least for a while, until we correct some things in the church, the word family is so tainted um, to mean the nuclear biological family um, that unless every time you say family, you're going to say, which means blah, 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 or put in parentheses, you know, don't call it a church family picnic. Don't call it a family 4th of July celebration. Um, then I'm like, okay, so is everyone going to be sitting on a picnic blanket with their own family? Or if it's like um, a lot of times churches will have things centered around kids, like a, you know, summer water day. And I'll think, well, I would love to go to that and eat hot dogs and watch the kids be crazy. But it's framed as a family event. And I think this is actually even harder for single men they're like seen as the creepy people like, Oh, what's that single man doing here? Watching our kids on the water slide. Well, he wants a hot dog and some community. That's what he's doing, you know? And so I think that checking our language, I think um, for every sermon you're preaching on marriage, there should be a sermon on singleness and a sermon on singleness is not a sermon on dating or preparing for marriage. That's a sermon on marriage. Um, if you're going to do a marriage series, don't give me a tacked on Sunday of singleness. Um, I'd rather you not throw me the bone at all <laughs> um, than to kind of put me on as an afterthought. Um, and I think like for, for pastors and lay leaders listening to this, the first thing I would say is identify like four to six single people in your church who are showing up consistently sit down and have coffee with them and ask them to be brutally honest with you. And then from there, have them help you make the plan. Do not, as married people, make a strategic plan for singleness in your church um, without single people leading the way. I think individually um, is probably maybe what I'm more passionate about just because I've experienced it in such real ways in my life. And the transformative power of the upside down kingdom and the way that we think about family and relationships. Um, I have four really good friends who are all married to, to great men who I love. Um, and I am not alone in life. Those friends help me make financial decisions. They help me decide when to travel and how long to travel. They travel with me. Um, they are donors to the work that I do. Um, my sister just got engaged recently and I was able to be there for that. And the last thing she said to me before I left at the end of the night 
she grabbed my hand and she looked me in the eye and she said, you know, nothing is changing. And I thought if only every single person could be that lucky on the night of their sister's engagement to hear those words. Um, and it's because my sister knows um, that one, I want to be engaged and that two, people often get married and become bad friends. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, th that's just, and I could say it honestly a lot harsher than that. Um, and I've heard it said a lot harsher. Um, but marriage is simply not an excuse for selfishness. Um, marriage is not an excuse for um, blocking yourself off from the world. Um, and, and single people have all the needs that married people do, right? There, there is no need that you suddenly have when you're married that a single person doesn't have. And so I think a great place for married people to start is sitting down just the two of you and taking stock at what do you provide for each other? Okay, we provide physical touch. We provide financial support. Um, we provide help taking care of our elderly parents. Um, we provide the support to be involved in a faith community, even when it's hard, right? Like, what are the things that we're giving and receiving in our marriage? Okay, all of those things are things our single friends need. How are we going to help provide some of those things? And I'm like, quote, unquote, really radical about this stuff. I hope that in my lifetime, I will see single people sharing, sharing bank accounts with married people and sharing houses with married people and not just like a single person lives in our guest bedroom for six months while they're, you know, getting out of grad school, but like single and married people buying homes together and planning their lives together. Um, there's a single woman I know who tells this story that just blows me away. She has a married couple that she's very good friends with and they all live in the same city. And every once in a while, the married couple will talk about moving for this reason or the other, but they sat her down and said, we want you to know that when we talk about moving, you moving with us is in the plan. Like we, we are thinking that if we go somewhere, you would move with us because we are each other's community. We are each other's family. And I, I just, I'll never get over that. And we'll know that we've reached equity when that situation is flipped. And when a single person who is in community with married friends gets their dream job offer and has to move and a married couple says, well, we'll pick up our lives and go with you, right? Um, and so, yeah, I, again, I could go on and on and I'm writing a book about this, so I will be able to go on and on. Um, but yeah, I just think that, I think the two words that I think most of my single friends would say that they desperately want and need is consistency and committedness, right? Um, being married people being explicit with their words and intentional and sitting people down and saying, we want to be your people. We want you to know that we put our phones on do not disturb at night, but you're set up for your phone call to go through. We want you to know that we know your parents are far away and that we can be your first phone call. We want you to know that we're never annoyed when you ask for help again. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, there's, I think just starting with an evaluation of what does my marriage provide me and how can we provide that to our single friends? And then 
how can we be committed and consistent? And then I would also say this, don't pick 12 single friends. That's, that's not a good plan. You can't be committed and consistent for 12 single friends. Evaluate your life and who are the one or two, maybe three max single people that God has already woven into your life. Um, please don't do like an adopt a singles program at church. That's a real thing. Don't, don't do that. Um, no, we don't need to be adopted. We're good functioning adults. We just need community just like you do. Yeah. Um, I so appreciate how, uh, honest and blunt you are. I know you kept saying, you know, I could say that. I could say that more harshly, but um, I, I think that people need to hear it like that. Um, and I am not kidding. I have five quotes from you that I was writing as you were talking. Mm. Um, so I'm really, really thankful. Uh, all right. Last thing as we wrap up here, where can people find you, Rise, um, yeah. your work? Yeah. So Rise's website is nowsherises.org, um, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at, at nowsherises, and then mine is Holly Stalkup, which my mom used to embarrassingly say like a horse stall, S-T-A-L-L, and a coffee cup, C-U-P, and of course that's the kind of thing when you're young, you're so embarrassed, and then of course my first week at college, the registrar couldn't understand my last name, and I, I said it and thought, oh God, I'm <laughs> becoming my mother already, so um, so yeah, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram at Holly Stalkup, and um, I would love um, to connect with any of you listening around Rise, around my work on singleness. I love to come and talk to churches on a Sunday morning. I want to start doing some like Saturday workshops where we put married and single people in the same room and begin conversations. Um, and then um, hopefully soon I'll have a contract signed on my book um, with a tentative title of Better Together. Um, the marginalization of single people, married privilege, and a new way forward. Um, and we're really excited with that book. We're going to release some small group curriculum that people can do um, and a workbook where married and single people can sit down together um, and have these conversations. And I, I think I'm glad to know you wrote those quotes down just because I think my number one job and these conversations around singleness is just to urge other people to have conversations um, because that is a good place to start um, is just by being willing to talk about these things and, and being honest and asking the hard questions um, and saying that this is complicated and weird to try to redesign family in a society that is set up for nuclear families, right? Like it's, it's difficult logistically and relationally to reprioritize and, and change things. And we don't have to do it overnight, but we do have to start um, talking about it. Yeah. Awesome. Um, for all of our listeners, I'm going to link everything to, um, I'll link Rise, Holly's uh, contact, informa contact information, like your Twitter. I'm not giving away all of your contact information. My goodness. <laughs> um, all right. Perfect. Well, Holly, thank you so, so much for coming on. Um, I'm so excited to release this one. I think that this is really needed and people don't talk about it enough. 
Um, so thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you for making space um, to talk about it and, and providing um, us this place to have a conversation. It was so good to talk to you. Oh, you too. All right, Holly, have a great night. All right, bye-bye. Thanks, goodbye. Didn't you just love her? I know, I know. Holly is amazing. The work she is doing is um, radical and I'm so thankful for her uh, work and her teaching. Um, at the top of the show, guys, I told you that I was going to give you a little update on Holly's organization and a way to get involved. So that's what this is. Uh, Holly is the CEO and founder of Rise and so she gets paid for what she does, which makes sense, right? Everything is 100% donor funded. So people giving five, 10, $20, whatever you can a month um, so that Holly can continue to do this work and the organization can continue to put out the content that they are putting out. Um, unfortunately, a couple of weeks ago, um, without notice, Rise is not receiving a large donation from um, a church that they have been receiving for the last uh, year or so. Um, in order to cover this, guys, this donation was um, about half of Holly's salary um, for the entire year, and so this is a big financial loss, um, and it was without a heads up. So. What I'm asking is that if you guys have any amount um, per month to donate to Holly and her organization, um, I would really encourage you to do so. Um, I mean, you heard her. The work that they are doing is really, really incredible. And I would love for our Making Room on the Pew community to be involved in um helping support her and the work that she is doing. Um, so guys, if you are interested in that, and I hope that you are, head on over to nowsherises.org backslash donate. I promise you, you will not be sorry. But until next time, this has been Making Room on the Pew.